Yo, welcome back, everybody. This is episode 34 of the Independent Intel Podcast. And I'm your usual host, Kimbui Bomani. And I haven't done one of these in a minute. Last time I did a solo dolo segment with myself was episode 22. This was around the NBA playoffs last summer. Uh, this summer, rather, since we're not into the year 2022. But I am back. Wasn't able to accumulate a guest for this episode. So I'm a freestyling on my own with my notes, requisite notes that pontificate on the NBA and NFL world. And we have quite a few things to talk about, especially in the NFL spectrum with certain free agent signings like Cam Newton going back to the Carolina Panthers, Odo Beckham Jr. after he was released by the Cleveland Browns, choosing between a litany of teams he could join to kind of resurrect his NFL career. And he decided to set his eyes on the Rams and the Rams themselves have some unique wide receiver breaking news that just might shake up their season in the long run. We're going to get to all of that as well in a few moments. Also, the NBA season in totality, the Washington Wizards are the first seed in the East. Who would have ever thought of that? They're balling out of their minds recently, 11 games into the NBA season. Golden State, kind of like their 2015 days, are doing it with their superstar all-NBA point guard known as Steph Curry. But they've lost one game this year in the 12 games that they've played so far this season. And let's be honest, if they didn't have a linear turnovers against John Moran, Smith, and Skirtsleys, they'd probably be the only 12-0 team in the NBA. But we're going to take it step by step, little by little, bit by bit. But I want to touch base on something that doesn't have anything to do with the topics we'll be getting into today. And that's more importantly, the fantasy realm. I'm playing fantasy football and basketball this year. It's the first time I've ever done such a thing in my life. Well, not first time, but it's the first time I've done so, and I've been heavily invested in both. Currently, right now, I'm 6-3 and three in NFL.com Fantasy. I'm in a, this unique league where you get extended amount of points in terms of the bonus level, that is, for having a quarterback throw for 300, 400 yards, their ability to get a 50-yard or 40-yard pass play downfield, all of those things. And I've had the fortune to be living on the waiver wire, being able to hit directly on some gems in the draft and then had some misses as well. So kind of want to pat myself on the back and I have a little rant about that in the NFL and even also in the NBA realm too, because I'm doing that as well. Currently 3-0, going to be 4-0 on the NBA fantasy spectrum on ESPN. That, in my opinion, might be a little easier than football because there's NBA games all week. And as long as you kind of stay abreast to the tempo and temperature of teams' rosters, injury reports, and the games in totality, I think you can find a way and finesse some W's, especially in a standard NBA league. Now, NFL-wise, coming into the season, I was the guy that took Patrick Mahomes first overall in the draft. I didn't pick first overall, but he was my first draft pick in that round. And hasn't really been the most beneficiary selection. He had a great week one against Cleveland, and he's kind of been hit or miss ever since then. A lot of it has to do with the turnovers. A lot of it has to do with Andy Reid's inability to establish the run to make his all-world quarterback's job a little bit easier in terms of throwing into loaded zone coverages. But, hey, sometimes you hit on things, sometimes you miss on them. So while I wasn't able to hit on Patrick Mahomes, I did hit on guys like Daryl Henderson. He was a hot commodity coming into the season in terms of Cam Akers getting hurt during training camp. He's kind of been a solid gem for me this season. The only issue with Daryl is he just gets hurt, but – Every time I watch the Rams game, his fluidity within the rushing attack and his ability to catch the ball out of the backfield and be dynamic as a rusher and a receiver is undervalued and underrated, I think, across the league and with that offense. And as long as he stays healthy, I think he's going to be a solid beneficiary of points, touches, whatnot in the real world and for my fantasy team as well. But the guy I put all my chips in banking on, he was going to have kind of a redemption type season, Cooper Cup. And I saw what they got in Matthew Stafford. I knew Stafford's going to sling that rock a ton. And I kind of gauge the possibilities and probabilities of the situation between who gets the most touches from Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. I baked on Cup because contrary to popular belief, Cup was kind of in the same situation that Woods is in now last year because I had Cup on my fantasy team and he wasn't getting the touchdown targets that Woods was getting in the red zone or a little bit beyond the red zone, rather, if I might add. So Cubs been balling. He's been phenomenal. He's made up for what Stephon Diggs hasn't been able to duplicate this season because Josh Allen's been erratic as a passer so far. And 
hurried up and pivoted off of a guy like Tyler Lockett and have made sure to add guys like Jamar Chase, who's been blossoming, Keenan Allen. But the dude I'm really hyped about, and I think he's going to keep it going. I think he's on pace to probably be first team all purpose as an all pro talent. Cordell Patterson, what he's been doing with the Atlanta Falcons has been unreal. And he's kind of resurrected his career, in my opinion, in terms of showcasing that athleticism, that dynamic talent that made him that first round pick coming out of Tennessee University, um, the University of Tennessee, rather, for the Minnesota Vikings. And, you know, Arthur Smith's been using him all over the field. It looked goofy at first when he was kind of their primary running back in their blowout defeat against the Eagles week one. But since then, he's been incorporated slowly but surely in the passing game because Calvin Ridley is out with his mental health situation. Hope really is able to get through that. And he's being featured in the backfield. He's been a beast. And that's something I kind of want to give him credit for doing. And he's helped my fantasy team a lot in terms of getting me some dubs. So got all those guys on my roster. I'm six and three. Now we're heading through the home stretch. I think at this point, I'm just hoping Mahomes can get out of his funk. And I think they'll open everything up for my team overall. So I want to give myself a pat on the back with the fantasy team success I've been having. I've always felt like when I've been invested in fantasy period, I tend to have a pretty good season. And the last couple of years, I wasn't as invested. We know last season was COVID. And then my couple last years at Jackson State was really more focused on my school than kind of being the dynamo in fantasy. But now out of school, doing things with PFF gives me some time to be focused on the fantasy run for both leagues, the NBA and the NFL. And I'm paying huge dividends. Now, if somebody was to ask me what's easier, NFL fantasy or NBA fantasy, I'm going to keep it a stack. I think NBA is a lot easier, especially in the standard league realm. I, I can only speak from standard league. I don't do a daily fantasy. I don't do DFS. I don't do all of that. I, I just stick with what I know, standard. And I feel like the standard fantasy league in the NBA is a lot more easier than the NFL because, like I stated before in my soliloquy, games every week. It's games every week. And the way I kind of drafted coming into this year doing NBA fantasy was I kind of looked at it as this look. You get points for – Points scored, assists, rebounds, field goals made, three-pointers, all of that. So I wanted to pick players on my team that could do a little bit of everything, which will allow me to get the most amount of standard total points as possible by the end of the week. So I took a flyer on a Malcolm Brogdon because I know what Malcolm Brogdon has represented throughout his NBA career. He's a guy that can get you 25 points. He can get you six, seven assists. He can be on the boards. And he's one of the premier perimeter defenders in all of the games. So he's going to get you four to five steals. So I copped him. Uh, Brandon Ingram is a guy I copped. I know I'm not a huge fan of Ingram in terms of him making his team better, but I know Ingram's going to put up a lot of shots on a Pelican team that's missing Zion. I know because of his length, he's going to be in around the glass, get some rebounds. And then it's basketball in a sense because of this fact in general. The more times you have the ball, the more times you are going to eventually play make for others. It doesn't matter how much of a ball hawk you truly are. So I knew the assist would kind of manufacture into his statistical line eventually, and they have. Guys that I am proud of are, you know, took a flyer on Scotty Barnes, and I kind of fell in love with Scotty Barnes' first game in the summer league. Wasn't really that high on him coming into the draft process, and I don't think a lot of Scots were either because I saw a lot of uh, Draymond Green comparisons. But then I saw in the league – he has a little bit of a mid-range jumper going for him. He's athletic. He's relentless. He's passionate. So because of that, that kind of molds his game into kind of being the premier jack-of-all-trades, do-everything type prospect. And I feel like on a non-fantasy tip, real-life basketball in general, I think Scotty Barnes has a chance to be an all-NBA talent. I know in draft circles, guys have been looking for the next Kawhi Leonard for a while. Kind of a guy that comes into the league who has defensive acumen, but you kind of got to build his offensive game slowly but surely from the mid-range to beyond, and then eventually he can become that all-NBA talent that you can build a franchise around and win a championship. And they've kind of missed. They've had, they've kind of put that label on guys like um, – how do I put it? Uh, they put the label on Josh Jackson. He never developed the jumper consistently, never was a huge Josh Jackson fan. Kind of put it on Giannis, but Giannis kind of morphed into being his own unique being. So I guess from that sense, I can't give him credit for thing. Giannis could be that next Kawhi. When I feel Giannis can do much more as a guy that can score around the basket from a power sense, he can take you off the dribble beyond the perimeter and get to the basket and dunk at will on a driving sense. And then he can play make a little bit better. I thought his playmaking ability has improved ever since Jason Kidd put the ball in his hands. So, you know, they've been searching for that Kawhi type talent. I think you finally got it. Scotty, I was high on Scotty in the summer league, like I stated. So I knew coming to the season, he's going to get starter minutes with Pascal Siakam out. Until recently, Pascal came back, 
And due to that, I knew, you know, from college, he rebounds, he defends, he assists, he playmakes. So I knew the scoring would come gradually, but his more impactful moments would be done in box score elements that weren't scoring. And so I knew he's going to be a beneficiary for my team. And he's been huge. Um, every time he's played this year, it's like he's got 20 plus fantasy points every single matchup he's played. Um, been living on the waiver wire because you can never take anything for granted. So I've kind of mixed and mingled with Melo sometimes. Gary Trent Jr. has kind of been a recent mainstay. His three-point shooting has been lights out. And then I do have OG Ananobi, who I did take in the draft. And he's kind of lived up to that most improved player building that everybody's been giving him the last two years. But he's averaging 20 a game. He's being a lot more proficient, efficient, and aggressive with his scoring ability. So, lack for better terms, I think NBA fantasy is a lot easier than the NFL. Games every day. You can find ways to kind of implement a new guy within your lineup. And they can make a huge impact and help you kind of get over the top in the week. So I guess the best advice I have, if you're a newcomer doing NBA fantasy like I am, that this is really my second time ever doing it. And honestly, because I never took it that serious the first time because I didn't have the resources to do so in high school. This really is actually like my first time doing NBA fantasy. And my advice to others would be, you got look, design your team around picking guys that can do more than just score the basketball. Obviously, with your first pick, if you have a chance to get a Kevin Durant, who's I'm not saying Kevin Durant is just a scorer, but if you have a chance with your first overall pick to get that all NBA talent who can for sure you can book in for probably 25 to 30, 35 to 40 fantasy points at least because of their ability to score at will and at volume from deep and all over, do it. But as you get deeper into the draft selection process and you're kind of stumbling along the lines of players like OG Ananobi or Karis LeVert or TJ McConnell, you know, those guys like that. Kelly Oubre, who I did pick up on the wire, he did nothing for me when I had him for like a day. I had him when the Hornets went against the Warriors. That whole team for Charlotte didn't really play that particularly well against Golden State. So as you get deeper, you want to pick guys that can do a little bit of everything because that's going to go a long way in terms of winning your standard fantasy lineups throughout the season. And I feel invincible right now. I think I'm on my way to be 4-0. Right now I'm up 400 points. Just loaded my recent lineup for today. Um, and also a big thing is stay with it. You got to be on it with NBA fantasy. If you decide to take a couple of days off in a week because you're busy, it could come back and bite you. So you want to just keep abreast with what's going on on different teams, different matchups, who's in, who's out, and just allocate some time to load up your lineup before you go about your day and then let the chips really fall where they may from there. So that's my tidbit on fantasy basketball and football. Hope you guys take that advice and run with it. I think it's valid advice. And now we got to get into these topics, my guy. We got a lot going on. And the first one is Cam Newton to the Panthers. Carolina's been struggling this year. Um, at first, when they were off to that 3-0 start, I was one of those guys that were very skeptical about the 3-0 start because I was really watching the Panthers in the preseason. And I saw how they were kind of game planning around Sam Darnold, protecting him from himself, kind of shrinking the field in a sense offensively by making him live and die by the checkdowns and intermediate throws because they didn't want to expand his platter to make those big-time throws you're going to have to make down the field 15-plus yards because they knew if they did that, there's a chance he could get intercepted at a vast rate, and that's happened recently. And so with that and also combined with the fact that he has a shoulder fracture, Sam Donald, in a brutal defeat that he suffered against the New England Patriots, he was kind of getting knocked around, if I might add, against Atlanta and New England those last two weeks. It's just those body bulls finally caught up to him, and his body kind of whittled and brittled against New England. Now it presents Carolina with a quarterback hole. They do have P.J. Walker, but they tried the P.J. Walker experiment last season, and it didn't work particularly well long term. So Matt Rule is looking at this season as this. You're in an NFC where the last two playoff spots are honestly up for grabs. I think we all know the Rams, the Cardinals, the Bucks, the Cowboys, and the Packers got the top five spots. We, we know this. The only way those teams wouldn't get the top five is if they have an injury at quarterback but and they just fall off the railing. But even with an injury at quarterback, I think they're just so far ahead in their divisions that they can probably finish the season as a division winner and still make the playoffs just based off of that. But we know those top five spots are gone. Now, past seasons, it'll be a fight for the six. And, you know, but now you got two spots. And Carolina can look at it like this. Those last two spots are occupied by teams within their division. They're in the NFC South. The Saints are five and three. And while wow, me as a Saints fan do kind of expect 
the Saints to not go down without a fight, I would still look at a playoff berth for New Orleans as a win because they don't have a quarterback. They don't have their starting quarterback. They don't have their starting receiver. Currently, as they head into their match against the Titans, Alvin Kamara won't play. He has a knee sprain. And defensively, they don't have Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who I think is an important glue guy for that team overall. So that's something that they're going to have to figure themselves out. Now, kudos for the Saints. Titans are having some injuries as well offensively, starting with Julio Jones, who will be on IR for the next three weeks. But Carolina, you got to look at it like this, bro. You're four and five. And right now, Saints got the sixth seed, and Atlanta has the seventh because they beat New Orleans. You've got the head-to-head over Atlanta because you beat them recently. So at four and five, I'm going to have to look in depth to their schedule. I know two of their last three games are against Tampa. Your defense is good enough to win games. Now you just need a competent enough quarterback and hope Christian McCaffrey can stay healthy to get to that next level. Now the big question is about Cam Newton. How competent is he? And have his stats up, 2017 to 2021, the PFF perspective, I might add. His highest passing grade in the last four years was, honestly, as I look at it, it was in 2017. Nope, lied. 2018, rather. He had a 70.0 passing grade, completed 67% of his passes, for almost 3,400 yards, 24 touchdowns, 13 picks. But his big-time throws and turnover-worthy plays, they're lopsided. Big-time throws, 13. Turnover-worthy plays, 26. Now, his recent season that everybody remembers, 2020 COVID year with New England, had more picks, 10, than touchdowns, 8. Didn't even eclipse 3,000 yards passing. And his passing grade was a 67.8. Now, a lot of Newton stands have gave him a pass because he was balling out early in the year. Seattle got COVID came back from COVID was never the same his throwing motion looked completely laboring came into training camp and in preseason looked decent enough in my opinion to at least have a chance to make the post to make a roster but I always felt live I thought look Matt Jones is hanging with Cam Newton in terms of productivity with the respective reps so if that's what's going to happen just give the guy you selected in the first round top 15 overall the starting job and either let Newton ride the pine or just cut him loose or trade him to somebody that's quarterback knee. That's what Carolina did. Not Carolina, New England did rather. Um, and they just cut Newton loose. Now, granted, Newton's being cut loose had a lot to do with him not getting vaccinated. And he's been being vaccinated since. But Newton at least showed in the preseason he was a lot better than what he was last year. And that's kind of all Carolina really needs. They just need somebody at the quarterback room who can kind of manufacture positive drives within their offense take what the defense gives them utilize their legs if the throw is in there throw it away and don't turn the ball over sam Darnold has been doing that at a huge huge immense rate it's been it's been undeniable to say the least about Darnold. his first three games six big time throws just three turnover worthy plays but he only threw one pick in the first three games of the season now let's go back to those three games in particular the Jets in week one, New York's defense is not that good. New Orleans defense, as we've seen lately, with the exception of their performance against Atlanta and Carolina, to be fair, New Orleans is a lot better defensively overall. The reason why they weren't that good in week two is because they didn't have their coordinators on the defensive side. Everybody was out due to COVID. And then on the defensive end, when it came to their players, guys were in and out the lineup due to injuries. Uh, and then play the Texans week three. I don't think the Texans defense is that bad. I just feel like the Texans team is bad overall because they don't have a competent enough quarterback. And I don't feel like Lovey Smith has the personnel to successfully run his brand of defense, which is otherwise known as cover two. Now, after that, Darnold really got exposed, in my opinion, against that Dallas front seven that brought a lot of looks and exotic blitzes headed by uh, the D coordinator, former Falcon coach Dan Quinn. And following those last six games in totality, Dallas on, Dallas to New England, eight big-time throws, 12 turnover-worthy plays by Darnold. He had three passing grades below 44%, and his ADOT expanded above the 8.0 grade against Dallas, Philly, and Minnesota, and that's really where he had his worst games in those matchups. So like I stated in the preseason early on, Rule is protecting Darnold from himself by shrinking the field and diminishing his throw distance dink and dunk which is why guys like robbie anderson who are utilized for their deep threat ability 
were being compromised on the team and guys early on like DJ Moore having more productive individual statistics. But it got so bad offensively that Darnold was turning the ball over that Rule was skeptical to even put it in the air. And that truly diminished DJ Moore's productivity, which early on in the year looked like it was going to be at an immense clip. Had some breakout games against the Saints and Thursday night against the Houston Texans. So at this point, what type of Cam Newton is the Carolina Panthers getting? I'm going to let his stands and guys know you're not getting the Cam Newton that was the 2015 MVP. But I'm looking at his last three years against Carolina. If you can kind of get a mixture of 2017 and 2018, where he's probably throwing for, I don't know if he can eclipse 3,500 yards passing, but let's, because he's starting the season so late, the amount of games, even though they've added a game uh, this year, regular season-wise, he's coming in so late, so I don't know if he's going to get to 3,000. But if he can get 2,500 yards passing, 18 touchdowns, 9 to 10 picks, but his big-time throws and turnover-worthy plays are not in the negative where he's having more turnover, excuse me, more turnover-worthy plays than big-time throws, and he can have a passing grade in the 65 to 70 percentile, that's a win. Because I remember Cam Newton in 2017, where a lot of people viewed 2017 as his last best season in the NFL due to his health being at a tip-top shape. He was serviceable, but productive enough in that offense to where when they played against the New Orleans Saints in the wild card, they had a chance to win the game. Um, He was making the throws necessary against tight coverage. He was a factor in the run game. He made Christian McCaffrey's life a lot easier in terms of being effective out of the backfield and in the run. It didn't feel like the offense was built around Christian. There was some balance between Christian's versatility and Newton's versatility. And if he can kind of get back to that level, Carolina can be a playoff team because I'm going to be honest. Uh, What the Atlanta Falcons have done recently, ever since their debacle in week one, where they look like they were on pace to be the worst team in football, they've turned around. Matt Ryan hasn't looked as washed as he has the last two seasons. Their offensive line has been decent the past few weeks. And what that has been able to do for Cordell Patterson in the run game and then for the receiving core, which usually when you don't have your top guy and Calvin Ridley, that's a death sentence. But Kyle Pitts has emerged, didn't really emerge last week, but he's emerged in the past few weeks. Cordell Patterson is now becoming a factor in the receiving game like he was destined to be as a receiver coming out of Tennessee. Now offensively, they're clicking. And defensively, they got, I think, one of the more underrated corners in A.J. Terrell. He had an up-and-down rookie season last year, and finally he's living up to possibly being the best cornerback in his class. I know Trevon Diggs has the picks, but we're talking about a complete corner in terms of locking up his side of the field and not giving up the big plays. That's A.J. Terrell. However, Atlanta as a whole still isn't a good enough team, I think, to be consistent. Offensively, if they play a team with a dynamic defensive line, Matt Ryan can be rattled, and that completely negates their productivity offensively. And on a defensive side, you just need an offense that can move the football, period. It doesn't have to be big plays. It just has to be methodical and precise, and you can score points with them. So I'm saying that all to say, Carolina can beat the Falcons. They beat the Falcons without Cam, without with Sam being piss poor and being conservative. So I think with Cam included, just being decent allows the Panthers to be a playoff team. Because right now, those six and seven teams are wide open because of New Orleans' injuries and their dawning schedule. And then Atlanta, as productive as they've been recently, the fact of the matter is Atlanta's still not a good team. They're getting by with Matt Ryan playing out of his mind with the weapons that he's had and slightly improved offensive line play, but they're still not a good team overall. Just to say, as great as they played against the Saints in the first three quarters, their defensive ineptitude and offensive stagnation allowed New Orleans to come back and almost beat them, and they could have beat them if the Debo didn't forget the principles of man coverage against a speedster known as Cordell Patterson. Yeah, Patterson's in his 30s, but he can still get behind you with that speed. Come on, I'll put respect on his name. But that's all I have to say on that. And look, man, room for Newton. I like Newton as a player, um, even though I'm a Saints fan and Panthers, Saints, intense rivals. I'm room for his success. And I think if he's able to hit it home this year, I think it'll allow him to maybe get a nice one to two year deal with Carolina moving forward because this draft coming up at quarterback sucks. And it gives Newton, in my opinion, a year and a half to kind of reclaim his stake in Carolina once and for all and kind of finish the season out as the franchise quarterback that we always knew 
he was in Carolina and what he can probably finish out to be. So my tape ain't on Cam Newton and the Panthers. Now, Newton was the only one in the free agency world that got to pick his new team or old team and Cam sense his old team going back home. It seemed like Odo Beckham was destined to be a Packer, destined to be a Patriot, destined to be a Saint or a Chief. Those are the top four teams that were constantly commemorated as the ideal landing spots for OBJ. But then he finally rested his laurels and decision on chasing the Hollywood lights and going to the L.A. Rams. And when he made a decision, the memes, they came. Oh, man, Rams building a super team in the NFL. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yada, yada, yada. But I think everybody acknowledged looks like OBJ for the time being is going to be the third receiver because they got Robert Woods, who's been gradually included offensively back into the game plan. And Cooper Cup is on pace to have Calvin Johnson record-breaking type numbers. So where is OBJ going to fit in? Even Van Jefferson is making a name for himself. But all of that has changed because right when OBJ signed on the dotted line that he was going to be a Ram officially, their second leading receiver, known as Robert Woods, went out with a season-ending ACL tear. Now, Woods, what he brought to the Rams, you maybe can't account for in fantasy because he's been such a letdown for a lot of fantasy owners that have Woods on the roster because Cup has been stealing many of the big targets that matter, which are the touchdown ones or the big play ones. But recently, he's been kind of on a tear in terms of being heavily incorporated in the passing game. Now, he's only surpassed 100 yards receiving once. Now, as he gets an already Seattle team, secondary rather, 12 catches, a buck 50. I mean, if Stafford wasn't so off target in that football game, Woods probably could have had 200 yards because there were a couple of plays where Woods was wide open. And if Stafford doesn't lead him to the turf, he probably is hitting stride and keep running. Um, his last five games, as bad as it was for Woods early in the season, he's been targeted 44 times. 45% of the time, he operated in the slot. So he's a guy, 46 catches, 558 yards, four scores, 18 explosive plays. Robert Woods has always been and continues to be the chain mover in that Rams offense. If you look at Woods and Cup's dynamic, Cup was always the big play guy out of the two. Ran the deeper routes. He was the guy that Goff and Stafford go to when they need a big play, whether it's a score or a vertical shot. Woods was the guy they went to to keep the chains moving, and he's done that very well ever since he signed with these guys in free agency after his brief tenure with the Bills. And he operated in the slot. So he was their tough slot guy who could catch the ball over the middle, make the tough sideline catches, take the big hits, and keep the ball in his palms, keep the chains moving. Like I said, he was all of that. That is gone. And now Odo Beckham kind of gets to operate under the confines of success that he had in his prime. I expect OBJ to be in the slot. And I expect Van Jefferson, who I think a lot of people thought would take the biggest hit since OBJ was included within the roster. I expect Van to be the boundary guy opposite of Cooper Cup. And I expect Van to be that deep threat for them. Um, he's been that deep threat for them so far. Uh, 27 catches, 433 yards, three scores on 48 targets. 22% of Van's targets were deep shots down the field. So I think Jefferson over time this year with Woods out is going to evolve into that number two receiver for them. But OBJ is going to be the slot guy. And he's going to get a chance to get all those receptions that Woods got in the slot. He's going to get now. Now, OBJ this year has been tough. It was tough last year when he went out with the ACL tier. And then coming back, took him a while to come back. He came back. And it's been tough for him, like I stated. He hasn't been really the same dynamic player as he once was. And I think a lot of it has to do with not being implemented consistently in the passing game. Him and Baker just weren't a good match. Now, I do think it's hand-in-hand. I think the audience that feels like OBJ is washed has a point. And I think the audience that feels like it was Baker's fault kind of has a point as well. I think it lies in the middle with, with Beckham Jr. I don't think he'll ever be what he used to be in New York, that dynamic receiver weapon that every time he went on the field, you can pencil in 100-plus yards receiving. You can pencil in 150 yards plus receiving, depending on the matchup. And if he was going against an elite receiver, you can probably pencil in 70 to 80 yards receiving. I think those days are over. And as much as the Rams pass the football, their offense is predicated off of route design and concepts to get guys open. So if Beckham struggled with that with Stefanski, I don't really see that getting better in a McVay system where schematically he schemes up 
how he wants his passing plays to coincide with each other, which is why Cup has been dominating in comparison to Woods this season. It also could have something to do with the rhythm that Stafford may feel with Cup than Woods. Um, nonetheless, Otto Beckham, man, he's, he's a gamer. He's a gamer, but he's only been targeted 36 times in six games, eight explosive plays. His dot is still immense. It's 15.3, but I think in that Cleveland offense, what Stefanski and Baker probably agreed to with Beckham, maybe told Beckham to his face, look, man, we're going to have you run vertical shots to clear out everything underneath for Baker because Baker's at his best intermediate-wise. Why didn't they include Baker Mayfield in the intermediate, not Baker Mayfield, but Odell Beckham Jr. in their intermediate pass concepts? I don't know, but they kind of used them as the speedster over the top, the clear the lane for the tight ends and for Jarvis Landry. Now in the Rams, I don't expect L.A. to do that. I think that's what was probably going to be the plan. Prior, I think he was going to be the vertical clear-out guy. The difference is between Cleveland and L.A., Stafford has the arm that Baker doesn't get it out there for OBJ down the field. That no longer can happen with Robert Woods out the lineup. So now I expect OBJ to be kind of their possession slot receiver who has the ability to take the top off the defense depending on the matchup. The problem I have with it is can OBJ stay healthy? That's it. And if he's going to be taking the middle of the field slot receiver role that Woods once have, which I expect him to do because Van has been their vertical shot, dude. I don't expect that to change. I just expect his touches to intensify. And Cup has been Cup. You know, wherever you line Cup all over the field, he's going to make plays happen. Man, that slot receiver position is demanding. It really is in the NFL. And if OBJ is succumbing to injuries where he's compromising his body as a boundary guy, what makes you think he's going to get better in the slot? I mean, that's why Julian Edelman is retired, man. That's why he took roids, which led to his retirement. He kept getting banged around as a little dude in the slot by linebackers, by safeties, by a combination of linebackers and safeties. I expect OBJ to resume those duties. And if he hasn't been able to last from contact consistently the past few years, you know, the broken leg with New York, the ACL, the Achilles tear in Cleveland, um, took him a minute to come back from that injury. And then he didn't look like he was the same. That's something you have to worry about. I feel like the way OBJ is at this point, I just feel like for his health, he'd be much better playing out wide. But I think now with Robert Woods not in the lineup, I think he's going to be much more productive for the Rams in the slot. My only issue isn't can he play well in the slot because we saw him play well in the slot before with the Giants. It's health-wise, can he sustain levels of productivity without getting hurt? Like, I mean, that's that's really the big thing with Beckham Jr. Uh, does it hurt the Rams? Yeah. I mean, Woods, as much as he wasn't kind of the focal point offensively that he used to be in the past under Jared Goff, he's still a guy that knows the system. He's still a guy that they went to. And recently, after that Seattle game, He's been getting those targets that he didn't really get consistently. They've been coming to him, and they're going to miss him. Now you got to kind of get OBJ acclimated to the flow of the offense. And as dynamic as the Rams are, and I made a list for independent Intel that I posted on Instagram where I had the Rams as the best team in the NFC. All these teams in the NFC are vulnerable, bro. Like, I know a lot of people are saying the AFC is weak, and I feel like out of the two conferences, the AFC is way weaker than the NFC. And people have let it be known, yo, whoever comes out the NFC, I have them winning the Super Bowl because the AFC is super weak. This feels like, in my opinion, the year where everybody's beatable in the NFL. That's playoff caliber. I didn't feel that the year the Niners and the Chiefs went to the Super Bowl. It just felt like Kansas City was destined to go there, especially after they came from behind and beat Houston. Same thing with the Niners because their defense was so stout. And they went against teams like Kirk Cousins, who – finally reached past around in the playoffs. He wasn't ready for the big lights. Aaron Rodgers looked like he was on his last leg in his career that season. And then the year after, uh, it didn't feel like anybody would stop the Chiefs, honestly. You know, I felt like in the NFC, you know, Tampa, they got rolling and got some breaks, in my opinion, against comp that you can't question. Uh, you still feel like in the NFC, you didn't know who could come out. AFC was kind of predetermined. Kansas City was destined. Cleveland gave him a scare, but we knew the Buffalo thing was a mismatch. This year, going off of the regular season, 
I don't know. I don't know. The Rams look dynamic offensively, but their two L's have been due to the fact that pass rushers have been able to get to Matthew Stafford. Just a statistic out there. It's not in front of me. I have to look it up. Stafford hasn't been sacked a ton this year, but the games that I've seen and the games that he's lost, the guys have been able to get to him. And Stafford is already a little wayward accuracy-wise with a clean pocket. We saw that against Seattle. With pressure, he's even worse. Tennessee got to him with four consistently. They lived in the backfield all night. He struggled. And that allowed Tennessee to set the tone overall, led them to a victory. Against Arizona, when Arizona annihilated them, obviously what Arizona offensively was able to do was phenomenal. But defensively, they were able to terrorize Stafford, and it completely messed up their passing game. McVay's passing concepts are predicated off of timing and precision. All that goes out the window when you're able to get to his quarterback. Now, every quarterback, we get it. If you pressure them with four, they're going to have a long day because a quarterback is all based on his timing and ability to get through his progressions and get to the guys he needs to go to. But with Stafford, man, it's just different. You know, sometimes you felt with Rodgers and Brady, yeah, hit him, hit him, get him, get him. But eventually throughout the game, they'd withstand the pass rush if it wasn't consistent enough and still make plays. With Stafford, man, you could just kind of get there a little bit early and then after a while, He's rattled. And so that's the only thing I have with the Rams. Like their offensive line has been suspect this season, especially recently. It's been highlighted in their L's. And yeah, they have the star power on both ends of the field. But if their old line's not doing what they're supposed to do, they're suspect. And then defensively, as dynamic as they are, they've got guys in the secondary that can be picked on. Jalen Ramsey no longer locks down a side of the field as a corner. He's more of in the Charles Woodson role, which is sometimes a play in a slot as a corner. And then sometimes they play deep backer as a safety. But Robert Rochelle, when he's been out there, he's been picked on. Daryl Williams hasn't kind of replicated the productivity he had, Darren Williams, right, that he had last season. And then, look, as dynamic as their password is, Leonard Ford still doing what he's doing. Aaron Allen is still great. They're bringing in Von Miller. My question with Von Miller is, is he another J.J. Watt in terms of, yeah, by name, he's a Hall of Famer. But in present day, is he a Hall of Famer? Uh, yeah, a lot of people are saying, yo, before the injury this year, he had four and a half sacks, but look who Denver played. Jacksonville, the Jets, and I can't think of the third team that they played, but I mean, look at their comp. Like it wasn't, those offensive lines aren't world beaters. We're seeing what, you know, Trevor Lawrence has been able to do this year behind that old line. He's been hit or miss. And the Jets offensive line, wow. Hasn't been done any favors because of Zach Wilson's play style. They can make a pass rushing opposition look good. So I, I don't know. The NFC's offensive lines as a whole, they're a lot better than what Von Miller was facing early on in the year against AFC comp. So I don't know what the Rams, man. They got the talent, but it feels different. And I know last year Tampa had the talent too, and they won the Super Bowl. But Tampa Bay caught a lot of breaks this season by facing elite teams that had indecision at quarterback the saints um division winners that had quarterback conundrums washington football team other heineke played well and then they played a green bay team where their own quarterback found the stability aaron Rodgers, the mvp did not play well <laughs> like he didn't play well statistically he played well but overall if you're watching the game he didn't play well and that allowed them to win, and then they played the Chiefs, who didn't have an offensive line, and that's how they were able to detonate them thanks to the help of the refs. I don't see stuff falling that way this year. You know, Tampa has injuries of their own. Green Bay still has Aaron Rodgers, and I think they're best when they're running the football, but I don't know when Jair's coming back. I, Eric Stokes is now hurt. Um, the Arizona Cardinals, just like last season, right on cue as we head into the second half of the season, Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins are compromised health-wise. So now everybody in the NFC is crippled, injured, some capacity, and they have weaknesses that are evident and shown. You can run Arizona out of the gym. I think that's how you beat the Cardinals moving forward. And I think teams that they'll probably have to play, Tampa is willing to run it with Fournette and Ronald Jones. The Rams running the football is a part of their offensive nature. I think that's how they set up a lot of their passing concepts. So I expect their running game with Daryl Henderson to still be flexible. Um, so, yeah, Dallas, they run the football with two guys. 
Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. So, look, man, it's no guarantees this year in the NFL. And so just because you have the talent doesn't mean it's going to all work out. And the Rams have sown chips in the armor this season to where they got the pieces. But are they going to win it? And the fact that they don't have any type of draft capital moving forward down the line means their stars that they're keying in on have a shelf life. And if it doesn't work out for them in these guys' primes, where can the franchise go for here? And imagine what they'll be leaving behind, too, by not being able to add first-round talents that can help them get better. Look, Kansas City, they went all in with Patrick Mahomes, but what they can say if they never win another championship is they got one. They got two AFC titles. They went to two Super Bowls. So although they're not playing well this season, there's still this outside chance they can make the playoffs. Anything can happen in the postseason. It's a game-by-game basis. But then also, if it don't work out this year, okay, they, they want to chip, though. They've been the two Super Bowls. Rams have been the one Super Bowl that they had no business being in. The refs did their job, and then they only scored three points. And in an NFC that I think is tougher than when it was last year, where the Rams probably to get to the Super Bowl will have to play in the wild card. So probably in the wild card, they might have to mess around and play, I don't know, Dallas. And then you might have to mess around and play Arizona and then Green Bay. You might have to play Dallas, Arizona, Green Bay to get to the Super Bowl. And I don't don't know if they're going to be able to do that successfully and get there. So that's kind of what I've been able to deduct from all of that. But hey, stay tuned. I think OBJ in the slot can do wonders in that McVay offense. It's just going to come down to health-wise. Can he last in the slot with the amount of ailments he's had with his lower extremities? NBA-wise, man, I want to give a hand clap to the Washington Wizards, Golden State Warriors. Uh, I think a lot of people, let's, let's be honest, let's, let's, let's cut the crap. I'm going to start with the Warriors first a little bit and then kind of diverge and dip with the Wizards, then go back to the Warriors. It's, it's a process. Stay with me. Going to get there in due time. If people really thought Golden State would be 11-1 this season, they're lying. I think a lot of people thought Golden State was a top-two team when Clay returned, including myself. However, well, I, don't, I don't really think I thought they were a top-two team, but I thought they were a top-four when top-four team. Um, but I think a lot of people thought they could be top-two-esque when Clay returned. And I was the one saying, I don't want to hinge all my eggs in the Clay return basket because there's no guarantee when Clay returns, he'll be what he used to be. He'll be a slight shell of himself, but that doesn't mean what he brings to the table won't help the squad. But I did feel the guy that would be much more impactful for them moving forward this year would be James Wiseman because of his athleticism, defensive upside, and size ability that as dynamic as Golden State is, they don't have to, I think, beat a team in a seven-game series like a Denver, like a Utah, as goofy as that sounds. Because when you think of Rudy Gobert, he doesn't have a defensive game. I think a Clipper team could give them problems because of what Zubak provides around the basket. Although Zubak doesn't play as big as he should be. But they're 11-1 this year. And they really should be 12-0 if they didn't turn the bowler as much against the Jaw-led Memphis Grizzlies. Golden State is legit. They're real. They remind me a lot of the 2015 team. More so than the 2016 team because they're breaking in these new conglomerate of pieces that weren't there last year, but they're focusing in on a couple of key guys that did play a huge part from the previous tenure. Uh, Jordan Poole, how he was able to develop last season has helped a lot in terms of what he's become this year. I think Andrew Wiggins kind of coming into his own role-wise as a guy that can potentially hit a corner shot, provide defensive versatility, and then allowing him as he gets into a rhythm and flow and comfortability with the team, showcasing his own individual offensive expertise helps. And it's Steph Curry, still Steph Curry. He can drop 40 on you, you know, 50 and 10, like he did, uh, you know, a couple of nights. He could drop that 40 piece on you like he did last night against Chicago. He could do all that. But he can also, like he did early in the season, have 20, 23 points, not shoot particularly well in the field. But he moves around, plays unselfish basketball, makes the team better without the basketball. And I think that's important in the NBA. And that's something star players need to adapt, I think, to be that legitimate all-NBA, all-world, Hall of Fame, all-time great talent. And that's opened up everything else for them. Now, they're starting a no-nonsense road trip out east. going to play Charlotte and Brooklyn in the coming days. So it's going to be interesting to see how they play away from the Bay. But they're legit. 
And I think at this point, what people need to be focusing on is how would they look like with Clay and Wiseman back in the picture? And is their level of play sustainable, especially on the defensive end? But I went a little bit in depth about Golden State more than I said I would. I want to kind of get back to them later. The Washington Wizards, though, are the number one team in the Eastern Conference. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I'm going to be honest. I never thought Washington would be the top seed. But I did feel like they'd be a lot better without Russell Westbrook. And the roster that they created in the trade deal that they made with the Lakers and kind of the moves that they made with other teams helped. And it created a more basketball-oriented roster than the two-man show that they pushed out during the COVID season with Westbrook and Beal. For starters, their pace is different. Number of possessions per 48 minutes. Last year, they were top in the league at a 104.67. And a lot of it has to do with Westbrook being the engine that he is that's a locomotive that never stops, especially in transition. Um, so it's understandable why they're playing at such a pace. This year, led by Spencer Dimwitty, they've slowed down pace-wise. They're not as helter-skelter, 99.68. That's 14. So that's league average. But the big thing that I kind of had coming into the year was I thought they were going to be better. Adding Dimwitty, adding Harrow, adding Kuzma. I think Kuzma in a more concentrated world where he kind of gets those same shot opportunities that he got in L.A., but he's more fluidly involved in the game offensively in other areas than just shooting the three in the corner, then now he's going to average a double-double. And I, I look, basketball, especially with young players, it's about getting them touches throughout the throws of the game, which will allow them to do the little things on the defensive end. So since he's getting different looks and different shot touches across the basketball floor in their half-court offensive sets, now he's grabbing nine rebounds a game. That goes a long way. Um, Dimwitty and Beal was the issue. I had. Like, I thought they would be a much better fit than Westbrook because I feel like Dimwitty, like a lot of guards are, are a better decision maker than Westbrook with the ball in his hands. But could the two divide their playmaking duties enough to where, yeah, they're scoring the basketball at the rate that we normally expect a Dimwitty and a Brad Beal to score? And I, come on now, we know Dimwitty is a score first guard. And we know what Brad represents at the two. Could they play make? And both guys are averaging almost six assists a game. I think Bill's averaging 5.6. His career high is 6.1, and that was a few years ago. So they're both playmaking at an elite clip. Bradley Bill shooting almost 98% from the line. That's helping a lot. Uh, now, he's not shooting the three ball particularly well, and I, that's expected early in the year where a lot of guys are attributing their shooting woes to the new basketball. But what Bill is doing is he's still got that mid-range on lock. His offensive game looks a lot more fluid this season because now he's getting it in the flow of the offensive set. And that's going a long way. And what you can't control every time, and it usually happens when you're a pretty good offensive team, is your energy and effort defensively. The Wizards are fifth in defensive rating, 102.9. Last year, they were 20th. Uh, they ranked sixth in opponent field goal percentage, 43.4% allowed. Last year, they were 20th, 47.1 last season. So these elements are important. Now, all of these statistics are before the game that they had against the Cavs last night, where that was another born burner in terms of defensive capabilities. Kuzma made the shots that mattered. Uh, made two huge threes, in my opinion, to kind of one of them to get the Cab get the Warriors. I'm like, not the Warriors. I said the Cavs and the Warriors. Get the Wizards closer to getting the lead back. And then you had another one to get the lead for good. Two big shots by Kuz. And I was a defensive, you know, barn burner against the Cleveland team that's much improved as well. So as much hype as Chicago has gotten, and I think Chicago's gotten it because a lot of guys are rooting for Lonzo Ball. He's a brand. Zach Levine, as underrated as he is, he's a brand in terms of the most underrated NBA player to date. Uh, Vucevic is a talented player. DeMar DeRozan is a brand in terms of what he's been historically. I think I would give the edge over the Wizards and the Bulls, and we'll see how they match up this season because their matchups are going to be important in terms of understanding the head-to-head dynamic because I think both are going to be joshing for the same spot playoff-wise. I think the Wizards are better because they defend just as well as Chicago, and I think Chicago is a better defensive team 
because of the defensive playmakers that they have in Caruso and Lonzo Ball. But Wizards can defend just as well. Huge ups to Wesson Slade Jr. for making that happen. And then offensively, they score a lot more easier and effortless because I think they have better shooters than the Bulls. Like the Bulls have Levine, who I think is a, he's a streaky shooter. More of a score. DeRozan's improved his three-point range, but he's more of a score. Lonzo Ball's improved his shooting, but he's much more streaky. Like Chicago has streaky shooters, but capable basketball players. The Wizards have knockdown shooters and also capable basketball players. Out of their lineup that they put on the floor, Kuzma and Dimwini are probably the most streaky. Bill doesn't have it going right now, but we know, contrary to popular belief, Bill, not, not popular belief, everybody knows this. Bill can shoot the ball, and he's not shooting particularly well right now, below 30%, but eventually that's going to knock down. Montrez Harrell is giving you 18 and 9 off the bench. Uh, Raul Neto is a nice backup point guard. And they're doing all this, and Danny, you know, Danny Avia is still getting adjusted to the game. Rui Achimura is going to come back eventually. So is Thomas Bryant. I think the Wizards and the Bulls are both in the same spot. I like where the Wizards are going because of their offensive upside matched with their defensive intensity. So Washington, big ups to them. I don't think they'll be a one seed forever, but as long as they're able to stay healthy and the guys that I think need to stay healthy for this team to be successful are obviously Beal, who was laboring towards the end of the last season. I think Dinwiddie needs to be healthy, and I think Montrez needs to be healthy. As long as those three guys stay healthy and Kuzma maintains his level of positive play, because I always felt like Kuzma, what he did early in his career, that's the best he was going to get. I think he maxed out early in his career, but he could still be a productive role player for an NBA team. As long as he's able to be that, this is probably a third, fourth seed in the East. Because I think Brooklyn's going to get their stuff together. They are. Durant's playing out of his mind. Harden is starting to get back in the groove. Kyrie's eventually going to return. Milwaukee, what's hurting the Bucks right now is injuries and COVID. Middleton has COVID-19, so he's not going to be playing for a while. Drew Holiday just came back after, you know, requisite injuries he's had in his lower extremities. So as long as their core three is able to stay healthy, we expect them to be back, and they will. And, you know, Boston and Philly are different. They're, they're different in this sense. Boston's a lot better than the record says they are. They finally got back to 500, so that's a plus. I think Tatum needs to start playing as well as Jalen Brown has, and Jalen Brown needs to stay healthy. So, and look, as good as Philly has been playing, I don't know excuse me, if it's sustainable. I don't know if it's sustainable. It's a good story. Uh, they remind me a lot of those Orlando Magic teams where they kind of built their team around Dwight Howard, where they have unlimited shooters, diverse ball handlers, and a glue guy in the middle that kind of makes everything go on the offensive and defensive end. The difference between Dwight and Joel is in Dwight's prime, he was healthy. It was where he was at the back end of his prime. He started to have the back injuries. But when he was healthy and right, it was usually in his prime. Joel's in the prime of his career right now. And we know for sure he can't play 82 games. We don't know if he can last the season to make it to the playoffs. If he could, I'd have a lot more belief in the Philadelphia 76ers. But they're going to need Joel to somewhat be healthy eventually. And I don't know if he's going to be able to be that for them moving forward. But... So those two are figuring out, but I like the Wizards, man. I do. I do because they defend just as well as Chicago and I think are a little bit more offensively balanced and efficient shooting-wise because of how they play. And they don't have two scores on their team. They have Bradley Beal. He's their guy. Dimwee is an underrated scorer, but what he's done a, a pretty good job of is being a solid point guard for them at the starting spot. And so that's where we have the Wizards. I'm confident on them. Now, back to the Warriors, 11-1, to killing the game. Where, you know, every night somebody gets their praise. Uh, early in the year, it was Belitsa. You know, Belitsa made people realize he's still like that. He was nice. Never got those minutes in Miami. But I remember him in Sacramento, and he's doing what he's doing in Sac and Golden State. Now, he ain't going to defend nothing, but he could shoot the three and he could play make. He could pass. Gary Payton Jr., Gary Payton's son, just as – a defensive menace as his dad and offensively he's at, he's an athlete. And so that final spot that they saved and reserved for him over Avery Bradley is looking solid. Indeed. 
And then we talked about what Jordan Poole was able to bring as well. I think for the Warriors, man, I just want them to utilize their first-round picks this season in some capacity. And if you're not going to do so, trade them. Because I think Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody can be solid NBA pros. Uh, I thought Toronto should have took Kaminga and built around him, but looks like they made a great choice with Scotty Bournes and his versatility. But, man, you got these guys in the first round of the lottery. Play them. I understand, you know, sending them to the G League is sometimes a necessity to make them better pros. But I don't think Moses Moody should be living there. You know what I'm saying? So uh, play those guys, especially when we get deeper in the year and back-to-backs are going to kill the likes of a Andre Iguodala, Bielitsa, and Draymond because they're older. So let, let these guys get some room and run. And Kaminga got some room last night, and he was showing his athleticism. So if you're not going to utilize them, then trade them. But I think for Golden State, if they, they're playing well, don't hurt them to take the San Antonio Spurs road. Where, yeah, we can have a superstar player for 20 years, but while we have him for 20 years, we're building towards a better future without him. So, you know, Golden State, if you're listening, adopt that, you know, mentality, that psychology, physiology, whatever whatever term you use, one of those three. Hey, man, that's, that's going to be it for Independent Intel. A little bit of a shorter episode, but it was a great one to have with you guys that you were able to listen to a solo Dola one. Um, now, before I go, things were kind of interested in this weekend from the football aspect, NFL, and then NBA. NFL-wise, as a Saints fan, I didn't take it hard when they lost to the Falcons. They had no business winning that game. I think Saints have a pretty intriguing schedule coming up. Tennessee, Philadelphia, and Buffalo. Winning two of those three would be a plus for their season. If they win all three, that's that's incredible to be 83. But now all of these games look a little winnable as we head into the deeper part of the season. Buffalo just lost to Jacksonville, who just got after them defensively with their pass rush. Buffalo's O-line's been beat up. And, you know, Philadelphia has played well the last two weeks to win. I mean, they've dominated Detroit and then, you know, played – played the LA Chargers close to the vest. So they're beatable. But, you know, Eagles, man, defensively a lot better than they were last year. So they can get after you with four, and they got the coverage guys in the back end to hold up against New Orleans' pedestrian weapons. And as better as Tennessee defense has played since that first month of September, offensively, they're down to the third and fourth backs. Um, no Derrick Henry. Julio Jones will not play. So now that allows the Saints to just put – Marshawn Lattimore on A.J. Brown and then provide help for Adebo on whoever he's covering. And just, just play smart football, man. Look, Saints, last two games they've had Trevor Simeon quarterback. They've turned the ball over once. Now, the one time they did turn over, the Falcons turned out to be the backbreaker. And if they convert some two-point conversions, they win. They just got to play perfect ball. Not perfect ball. They got to play close to perfect football moving forward with Simeon. And it's possible because, like I said it before, the competition – in the NFL is not as daunting as people make it seem. Everybody's beatable this season. You just can't beat yourselves. And on the NBA spectrum, interesting to see how the Warriors look in a road trip out east. They got some comp that they're going to face. They can come out of this road trip with about, you know, just a couple more losses and still maintain their integrity of basketball. That's a good place to be. Oh, L.A. teams. Going different directions, man. Lakers look like they're getting their stuff together, man. Beat the Heat. Well, have kind of spiraled a little bit. Um, you know, he didn't have Jimmy Butler the last two games. I think that played a huge part, but he'd have kind of cooled off a little. But they beat Miami. So I'm thinking, all right. And they were dominating the, the Wolves early. And then the Wolves dominated them in the second half. So it, that this is just what it's going to be with the LA Lakers, I think, this year, up and down. And on the other end, the L.A. Clippers, at one point, they were one and four, but I was one of those guys that was like, look, Clippers are one and four, but they're playing good basketball. They just got to just gotta finish games. Just got to finish games. They've, they've been right there in a couple matchups. Just got to finish strong. Beating Minnesota a couple of times helped. And, you know, their win against Miami was huge. Paul George was phenomenal during their little losing streak, but then – what happened was everybody else within their team pitched in, played their part, and that allowed that win streak that they're on currently to keep going. And then the Sacramento Kings, man, I've been supporting y'all a little bit. Because you got my boy De'Aaron. 
De'Aaron has not played well this year. I think that's a huge part of them being five and eight. He's got to play better. Um, that loss to the t- to the Thunder was was tough because they were beating them. They were they were at the chains most of the game, and then Oklahoma City went on the run. Sacramento went on a little cold streak offensively. They've been prone to do that all year. And down the stretch, man, Fox made mistakes. You know, can't do that weak crossover in front of Lou Dort, bro. He, he's like that defensively. Can't do it. He did got pickpocketed. Kudos to the Thunder, man. It looked like they were on pace during the year to be trash. And now they're five and six. Now it's all up to what Sam Presti commemorates as a perfect season. If a perfect season is be competitive and let the chips fall where they may in the lottery, like take the Boston approach, then I think they have a chance to be a playing team. If it's to lock it down by game 30, then they don't. They're a lot better than what they were last year roster-wise, and they fit a lot better than what they did roster-wise last season. And last season for 24 games, they were like 10 and 14. This year, you get an, another better ball handling, Josh Kitty. Uh, Basically looks like a lot better pro than he's been early on in his career. SGA's control offensively just looks phenomenal. And Lou Dort is starting to develop into a competent two-way player. So this Oklahoma City team is going to be a tough force to be reckoned with. So that's something to look out for. Um, but back to the Kings, man. Get, get, just get rid of Luke Walton and trade for Ben Simmons. That, that's what I would do. I think Kings, Wolves, they need to be the two teams trying to trade for Ben. But the Ben Simmons thing is his own thing in his own right. We'll see where that goes. Um, with that being said, it's the end of episode 34 of the Independent Intel Podcast. Hope this is a good listen for you guys. I'll be back next week. What a guest may be, maybe not. Try to hit my boy Hoop up. He's a busy man. A lot of people are busy during this time of the year. Expect nothing else. But stay tuned, guys, for some more content. Other than that, peace out. Holla.